Today is Wednesday, December the 20th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft is speaking gibberish. The famous spacecraft started transmitting a repeated pattern of ones and zeros, and engineers are scrambling to find a solution. NASA's iconic space probe is having trouble communicating with its home planet due to a computer glitch, forcing engineers to resort to decades-old manuals to come up with a way to fix the 46-year-old mission. The spacecraft's flight data system, that's the FDS, collects data from Voyager's science instruments as well as engineering data about the health of the spacecraft. That data is combined into a single package so it can be transmitted to Earth through one of the probe's subsystems, the Telemetry Modulation Unit, the TMU, in binary code. FDS and TMU, however, have been having trouble communicating with each other. As a result, TMU began sending data to mission control in a repeating pattern of ones and zeros, as though it was stuck. The team behind the mission believes an issue with FDS is the source of the communications breakdown. NASA released the following statement. This past weekend, the team tried to restart the FDS and return it to the state it was in before the issue began, but the spacecraft still isn't returning reusable data. Voyager 1 and its sister ship, Voyager 2, have been active longer than any other spacecraft in history. An impressive feat, but one that comes with unique challenges. In order to come up with a solution for the space probe, NASA engineers are looking through original documents that were written decades ago. As a result, it takes time for the team to understand how a new command will affect the spacecraft's operations in order to avoid unintended consequences. The spacecraft is so far away that it takes 22.5 hours for commands from Earth to reach Voyager 1 and vice versa. That means the mission team has to wait 45 hours to find out whether the command they sent was effective. 
This isn't the first time Voyager 1 stopped making sense. Last year, the space probe began transmitting Garbo telemetry data that didn't match up with its actual location and orientation. At the time, NASA engineers figured out that the issue was a result of a faulty computer that was corrupting the data. Despite some minor hiccups, Voyager 1 is still doing, well, pretty well for an aging spacecraft. And NASA's longest operating mission, Voyager 1, crossed into interstellar space in August of 2012 to study the outer solar system and explore beyond the sun's heliosphere and has traveled further from Earth than any other spacecraft. Hey, it's been two months. Why can't NASA open the asteroid sample container? The space agency is having to develop new tools to crack open the canister containing bits from asteroid Bennu. In September, fragments of a near-Earth asteroid were carefully dropped off in the Utah desert. The space rocks hold clues to the origin of the solar system and can possibly answer crucial questions about how our planet came to be, if only we can get to them first. NASA has been struggling to open the canister containing rocks and dust collected from the asteroid Bennu ever since the container landed on Earth. The space agency now anticipates that the asteroid sample canister will be opened sometime in early 2024 as engineers fashion new tools to help crack it open while still preserving the pristine rocks. Now wait a minute. They got these rocks into the container, they closed the lid on it, and now they got to figure out how to open it? That's a head-scratcher. The OSIRIS-REx mission launched in September of 2016 and reached asteroid Bennu in December 2018. The spacecraft snagged pieces of a small near-Earth asteroid in October 2020 and began making its way back to Earth in May of 2021. This was NASA's first attempt at retrieving a sample from an asteroid in space, and the Bennu debris had to be well-preserved for the journey. The asteroid bits were sealed inside a round sampler head at the end of an articulated arm that the spacecraft used to grab the sample. Ever since arriving to Earth, the TAGSAM head, that's a touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism where the bulk of the asteroid sample stored, has been stubborn. The curation team for the OSIRIS-REx mission has been having trouble opening up TAGSAM, which is being carefully handled by members of the team through a specialized glove box under the flow of nitrogen to prevent contamination. Two of the 35 fasteners on the TAGSAM head could not be removed with the current tools approved for use in the OSIRIS-REx glove box preventing them from extracting the samples inside. The team did manage to collect some material from outside the TAGSAM head. When the aluminum lid to the sample caster was first removed, team members found black dust and debris on the avionics deck of the canister. They also removed some of the material from inside the canister with tweezers or a scoop while holding down the TAGSAM head's mylar flap. The extra bits collected so far have exceeded NASA's goal of collecting 60 grams from the surface of Bennu, so the space agency already has material to work with. In October, NASA gave the public a first look of the asteroid samples that had been collected so far. 
The total amount of the asteroid sample is an estimated 8.8 ounces of rock and dust. That comes out to 250 grams. Even with a bonus sample outside of TAGSAM, the $1.16 billion OSIRIS-REx mission has already proven its worth. Scientists performed an early analysis of this asteroid sample and found an abundance of carbon and water molecules, supporting the theory that the building blocks of life may have made their way to Earth via asteroids. One can only imagine what more Bennu can offer once scientists gets to the bulk of its sample. Since November, NASA has stopped trying to fidget with a sample canister, but the space agency hasn't lost hope. Instead, NASA is currently in the process of developing and testing new tools to open the canister. Design, development, and testing of new tools made of contamination-compliant materials is in the works to safely complete sample retrieval from the TAGSAM head in the pristine glove box. A NASA spokesperson said in an email, depending on the timing of the building and testing, we anticipate it will be open in the first quarter of 2024. The TAGSAM head may be stubborn, but the space agency is also hell-bent on getting those precious space rocks into the hands of scientists around the world for analysis. The priority, of course, is to extract sample while still protecting it from earthly contamination that could mess with the data. Bennu is a small near-Earth asteroid that makes a close pass to Earth every six years or so. Scientists believe Bennu may have broken off from a much larger carbon-rich asteroid about 700 million to 2 billion years ago and drifted much closer to Earth since then. The plan is for the curation team at NASA's Johnson Space Center to extract and weigh the sample, create an inventory of what's inside, and distribute pieces of Bennu to international teams of scientists. Hopefully, NASA will be able to crack that baby open and give us a better chance of learning about the origins of our star system. The little guy, Google, no, no, I mean the big guy, of course, is to pay $700 million to U.S. states and consumers in Play Store settlement. Google has agreed to pay $700 million and to allow more competition in its Play App Store according to the terms of an antitrust settlement in its Play App Store, with the U.S. states filed in federal court this week. In separate complaints, the Justice Department and dozens of states accused Google in 2020 of abusing its dominance in online search by allegedly harming competition through deals with wireless carriers and smartphone makers that made Google search the default or exclusive option on products used by millions of consumers. The complaints eventually consolidated into a single case. Today, the details of a settlement reached in September with state attorney generals were filed publicly. A Google spokesperson said in a statement, According to the settlement and company, Google will pay $630 million into a settlement fund to be distributed for the benefit of consumers according to a court-approved plan. Another $70 million would be paid into a fund to be used by the states, according to the settlement filed in the San Francisco Federal Court. Some 102 million consumers stand to benefit from the fund, according to the settlement. 
each eligible consumer will receive at least $2 and will receive additional payments in proportion to their Google Play spending during the period between August the 16th, 2016 and September the 30th, 2023. This settlement builds on Android's choice and flexibility, maintains strong security protections, and retains Google's ability to compete with other OS makers and invest in Android ecosystem for users and developers in a statement that was released by Google. The company added, Android and Google Play have continuously evolved to provide more flexibility and choice, as well as intense competition from Apple and app stores across the open Android ecosystem. Furthermore, they said, we demonstrated this in the recent trial and were disappointed that the verdict did not recognize the choice and competition that our platforms enabled. This case is one of several antitrust issues facing Google. Last week, a federal jury decided Google's app marketplace was an illegal monopoly. The verdict came after a years-long battle with Epic Games, maker of the hit video game Fortnite. And still in another ongoing case, the Justice Department accused Google of intentionally stifling competition, challenging its search engine. But getting back to the $700 million settlement, it's chump change, and we know it. It's chump change for doing business. Apple watch sales pause over patent issues unlikely to dent revenue, though. Apple confirmed the cessation of sales for two of its watch models, the Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2 in the U.S. market. This decision came in response to a patent infringement ruling involving the medical technology company Massimo, which at first glance might appear to be a significant setback for the tech giant. However, leading equity analysts believe that the financial impact on app may not be as severe as initially feared. What happened? In October, the International Trade Commission, that's the ITC, upheld a judge's ruling that Apple had violated Massimo's patents, particularly in the technology used for measuring blood oxygen levels in its latest watch models. It's important to note that this ruling excludes the SE line of products, but has a significant impact on the Series 9 and Ultra 2 models. Financial impact analysis is that the IDC shipment estimates are that Apple supplied 43.9 million Apple Watches in 2022 with an average selling price of approximately $466. Overall, Apple Watch revenues are pegged close to $20 to $20 billion, the newer models including shipments. According to experts, given that approximately 30% of global smart watch sales occur in the United States, the theoretical impact of this ban could affect around $5 billion in sales, which translate to about 1% of Apple's total revenue. The final impact for the Cupertino-based tech giant could be even lower depending on the duration of the ban and Apple's capability to redirect U.S. consumers towards older models. Mitigating factors is that Apple is not sitting back passively in the face of this ruling. The company expressed its intention to appeal the ITC's decision. 
Furthermore, Apple has formally asked the Biden administration to reconsider and potentially reverse this decision as part of the commission's ongoing review with a decision anticipated before Christmas Day. Google will turn off cookies for 30 million people on January 4th. That's next year, 2024. Google's cookie-killing privacy sandbox project is finally set to begin. Google said that it would start its long-anticipated slaughter of the Internet's cookies starting on January 4th when it will block them for 1% of Chrome users or about 30 million people. It's the first major step in its privacy sandbox project, which aims to replace cookies with a different kind of tracking that Google says is better for your privacy. For the past 30 years, websites and tech companies have used so-called third-party cookies as the primary way to track customers online. There are probably third-party cookies involved, and these cookies let websites partner with other companies, including Google and tons of others, to keep tabs on everything you do online. That's great for companies, but terrible for your privacy because it means there are a lot of businesses who get to keep a history of all your web browsing. In place of cookies, Google has introduced a new set of tools to make the Chrome browser itself keep tabs on what you're doing online. Essentially, that data stays on your device, and your browser sorts them into various categories or add topics as Google calls them. Websites can ask Chrome what categories you're in, but they won't be able to figure out exactly who you are, at least not using cookies, and of course there are other less popular techniques. Chrome is still tracking you and doing it in a way that browsers like Firefox and Safari don't. But most people don't bother to change browsers. And if nothing else, Google's shiny new version of Chrome is a step forward for privacy because it reveals less information about you and what you've been up to on the internet. According to Google, they're saying that we are making one of the largest changes to how the internet works at a time when people, more than ever, are relying on the free services and content that the web offers, said the Google Senior Director of Product Management for Privacy Sandbox. The mission of the Privacy Sandbox team is to keep people's activity private across a free and open internet, and that supports the broader company mission, which is to make sure that information is still accessible for everyone and useful. These Privacy Sandbox cookie replacements are already available on the Chrome browser, but for now, it's an optional tool. You can go into your setting and disable them if you don't like the idea. These moves are a big deal because the vast majority of Internet users are on Chrome, which means that when Google is done with its cookie killing, they'll essentially be, well, hopefully dead for good. If you see a pop-up in Chrome on January 4th, that means you're in the test group of 1% of users who are getting tracking protection by default which is Google's name for the cookie-blocking tool. When tracking protection is on, you'll see a little eyeball logo in the URL bar. This is a major change to how the Internet works. Cookies aren't just used for spying. They also keep track of whether you're logged in, what you have in your cart, 
and a variety of other convenient things. Google is working to single out the bad cookies and save the good ones. But, like all things new, there will be glitches in the early stages. You'll be able to disable tracking protection on the fly to solve any issues, and Chrome will prompt you to disable it for any given website if it notices you're having issues. There goes the cookie monster man. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, how everything fits together, how it interacts, and you are all part of the ride. This week, I want to talk about something that is, uh, well, based on statistics, based on surveys, has been a major shift uh, over the recent years. I want to take you back. On this particular item, years ago, over 20 years ago, I worked for a company, and when I was working for that company, for most of my time, I was the go-to person in regards to any kind of malware attack. At that time, we didn't hear of uh, any kind of ransomware or anything like that. This was back in the days of simple computer viruses and computer trojans, different little packages that they would deliver and they would spread and they would cause damage. It wasn't until later where they would find the capitalist monetary approach and say, give me all your money. So uh, way back then, I was actually blessed uh, in that one of my uh, one of my coworkers had decided they were going to take over the handling of any kind of malware. And back in those days, what happened was that the company I was working for got hit really hard by one of the bigger malware packages that were available out then. I, I'm not going to go into details. I don't want to divulge anything, even though it's a company that's no longer around and, and all of that. It's it's not so much about that. It's a matter of the situation. And for that brief period of time, a few months, I was not in charge of this. And in the aftermath that cost the company a few million dollars, the person who was in charge had made some strategic mistakes, had made some technological mistakes, and they were, well, they were shown the door. And that's kind of unfortunate. And that was the approach for very uh, for a very long time. Any time that we had any kind of a data breach, any time we had any kind of major cyber attack, whether we're talking about, yes, again, viruses or Trojans or ransomware or whatever, the entire cybersecurity team was vetted very carefully and most of them were sent packing on to go somewhere else if you couldn't stop this then you really don't have a place here in our company well the realities have changed and along through this, the realities are that everybody is going to get attacked at some point it's kind of kind of like COVID. If you think of it like this, if we're going to relate it to anything, let's talk about it as COVID. 
everybody has a very distinct potential of getting COVID, even doing everything that we can just because we are a social society and there are certain things we have to do. We have to go to the grocery store. We have to interact with people to some extent. So there is a potential that we're going to get COVID. And there's a potential we're going to get computer viruses and Trojans and malware and ransomware and all of the rest of this. So the CEOs, all of the people up at the top, everybody in the C-suite has come to the realization that we're all going to be targeted. We're all going to be hit. It's just a matter of time. So why are we getting rid of the people who have the experience? Why are we going through this whole approach of punishing everybody who's involved? So, a recent uh, report came out. It's a company called Trellix, and they did the Mind of the CISO report. That's the Chief Information Security Officer. And they went through it, and they found in this survey that only 13% of the CISOs out there said that their company fired people or reduced staff in the first year following a major cybersecurity incident. I'll tell you, at 13%, that's a low number. That is that is really there's a long held belief that 10 percent of the people out there aren't capable of doing their job. So already we start looking at this as this is pretty close to that level of incompetence. This is people that 13 percent is the people who are, yes, most likely you know they're they, they really messed up bad. So uh, the next uh, next up, they said twenty three percent said that their companies reduced staff one to three years after an incident, and thirty one percent said their companies fired people more than three years after the event. Okay, so what we're talking about is you know they're they're realizing that this is very similar to yes life. It's something we have to deal with. Yes, we're going to hire the best people. And yes, we're going to find out sometimes after we get hit that we didn't have the best person in this role. And on the other side, aftermath of uh, you know the, all of this stuff that happens afterwards, they said that 46% of them increased their budgets for new technologies to beat the malware, and 38% said that they created new jobs and new responsibilities, and 44% added in new services. So it sounds like everybody is reacting properly instead of just giving the hatchet to the person who messed up. Now they're saying, okay, let's give them more resources. Let's fight this. Let's beat this back. Is this going to change how the malware guys go? No. Is it going to change how ransomware is delivered or any of that? No, it's just a matter of companies, businesses have come to the reality that punishing people for something beyond their control isn't really the right way to do it. And I applaud that. Of course, I'm a nerd and I do have some level of cybersecurity background. So maybe I'm biased. Who knows? As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Tech job losses highlight 2023. The tech industry has indeed experienced a significant number of job losses in 2023. With more than 240,000 jobs lost so far, this number is already 50% higher than the previous year, indicating a continuing trend of layoff in the tech sector. 
Major tech companies such as Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Yahoo, Meta, and Zoom have been among the companies that have implemented mass workforce reductions. Additionally, startups across various sectors have also announced cutbacks throughout the year. While tech layoffs slowed down during the summer and fall, it appears that cuts are ramping up once again, and this happening just right before Christmas. It's a bad time of year to be cut off. This suggests that the momentum for a tech sector rebound has been slow to build, leading companies to continue cutting back on their workforces. The reasons behind these job losses are multifaceted. Despite economists cautioning against fears of a recession, the tech sector has been facing stubborn market conditions, resulting in companies pivoting from a growth mindset to one based on efficiency. This shift has led to workforce reductions and a focus on cost-cutting measures. Understanding the impact of these layoffs is crucial for assessing the state of innovation, identifying companies facing significant pressures, and determining the availability of talent for businesses that are fortunate enough to be growing during this period. It is important to note that while the NASDAQ index, which is tech bias, has made positive gains, the number of tech job losses seems to contradict the stock market's performance. This discrepancy highlights the complex dynamics at play in the tech sector. The tech industry has experienced a significant number of job losses in 2023, with almost a quarter of a million jobs lost so far. Major tech companies and startups have implemented mass workforce reductions, reflecting the challenges faced by the industry. While the NASDAQ index has shown positive gains, the job losses indicate a more nuanced picture of the tech sector's performance. When Windows 10 support runs out, you have some options, and two of them may be worth considering. Microsoft will officially end support for its most popular operating system in October 2025. Here's what you should do with your Windows 10 PCs before that day arrives. In less than two years, Microsoft will draw the final curtain on Windows 10 after a successful 10-year run. That news shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. The end date is right there on the Microsoft support document that lists products retiring or reaching the end of support in 2025. The schedule is defined by Microsoft's Modern Lifecycle Policy, which is documented on the Microsoft Lifecycle page. Windows 10 will reach end of support on October 14, 2025. The current version, 22H2, which means it came out last year, will be the final version of Windows 10, and all editions will remain in support with monthly security update releases through that date. When a Windows version reaches its end of support date, the software keeps working, but the update channel grinds to a halt. There will be no new security updates, non-security updates, or assisted support. Customers are encouraged to migrate to the latest version of the product or service. Paid programs may be available for applicable products. That part in the middle sounds encouraging, doesn't it? Customers are encouraged to migrate 
to the latest version of the product or service. Unfortunately, that's not a supported option for customers running Windows 10 on hardware that does not meet the stringent hardware compatibility requirements of Windows 11. If you try to upgrade one of those PCs to Windows 11, you'll encounter an error message, and Microsoft is adamant that it will not extend the support deadline for Windows 10. Well, for Windows 11, try doing these six things right away after you finish setup on 11. If you're responsible for one or more Windows 10 PCs that fail Microsoft Windows 11 compatibility tests, what should you do? Well, you have some options. First one is ignore the end of support deadline completely, which I think a lot of people will do. You could do nothing at all. Just continue running your unsupported operating system and hope for the best. That's a bad idea, though. One that exposes you to the very possibility, very real possibility, that you'll fall prey to a security exploit. I don't recommend this strategy. If you're intent on doing so, consider installing the free Opatch agent to deal with any security issues that aren't addressed by Microsoft. That option is free for personal use. That's Opatch, capital O-P-A-T-C-H. But for business or enterprise use, you need to pay for Opatch support at a rate that equates to a few dollars a month. Another option is, well, this is an easy one, well, in a way, buy a new PC. Microsoft and its partners would like you to replace that unsupported hardware with a brand new PC. If Windows 12 arrives in mid-2024, as expected, you might even be tempted to buy a shiny new laptop or gaming PC, which runs that next-generation operating system. But throwing away a perfectly good PC seems wasteful, and it's not an option if you're hanging on to Windows 10 because you have mission-critical software that won't run on the new operating systems. Uh, Another option might be just ditch Windows completely. You could keep your old hardware and replace Windows 10 with a flavor of Linux that you prefer. If you got the technical know-how and experience to manage the transition, that option is worth considering. But for the overwhelming majority of consumers and businesses, that have existing investment in Windows software, it's not a realistic alternative. The final two options are probably more attractive, which is pay Microsoft for security updates. You remember the official support document that was quoted earlier? The one that says there will be no new security updates after Windows 10 reaches its end of support date. It turns out that it's not, well, it turns out that's not exactly true. Microsoft will indeed continue developing security updates for Windows 10, but they won't be free. Microsoft announced in December of 2023 it will offer Extended Security Options, ESUs, for Windows 10s. These subscription-based updates will be available for up to three years, and how much are these paid-for updates going to cost? Microsoft didn't say promising only that further details will be available, of course, at a later date. Option 5 is, well, upgrade your old hardware to Windows 11. That's a pesky compatibility checker that might prevent you from upgrading your Windows 10 PC the easy way. 
but they are indeed officially supported ways to install Windows 11. You just have to jump through a few technical hoops. Find all the details in a software support bulletin titled Installing Windows 11 on Devices That Don't Meet Minimum System Requirements. Installing Windows 11 on a device that does not meet Windows 11 minimum requirements is, in my humble opinion, not recommended. If you choose to install Windows 11 on ineligible hardware, you should be comfortable assuming the risk of running into compatibility issues. Your device might malfunction due to these compatibility or other issues. Devices that do not meet these system requirements will no longer be guaranteed to receive updates, including but not limited to security updates. Well, what's the bottom line? This is the industry that has been constantly building in upgrade changes in hardware and software to require you, the consumer, to buy new equipment and or software updates that really has no impact on your business processing needs. To add insult to injury, there are navigational changes going from Windows 10 to Windows 11. This will just add another definition to the word in the dictionary. It's only transitory. The only Chinese chipmaker with an x86 license releases surprisingly modern new chips with a mystery process node. Zhaozhen KX7000 CPU launches with 8 cores, 3.7 GHz clocks, PCIe 4.0, and DDR5 memory support, and chiplet-based design. It's been a long journey for Zhaozhen and its KX7000 series consumer CPUs, which were first anticipated to launch in 2019. They have arrived at last. With Zhaozhen claiming that the KX7000 is twice as fast, represents an important step forward for China's fledging semiconductor industry as it looks to gain independence from Western technology and sanctions. And it comes from the sole Chinese company with an X86 manufacturing license. Speaking of which, the United States has restricted China's access to leading process node technologies making it hard for the country to create chips. Zhaozhen isn't divulging the process node used in its new processor, and sources close to the company won't reveal its fab partner or process node due to a non-disclosure agreement. The new chip does use a chiplet-based architecture, so it is possible the company is relying upon multiple fabs for production. In either case, the Zhaozhen KX7000 chips are sure to be one of the fastest CPUs natively made in China, and they come with a much more robust array of platform features that provide modern amenities, a rarity with China's self-designed chips. These new features include PCIe 4.0 interfaces and DDR5 memory support. The new Century Avenue architecture inside the KX7000 has an improved front-end, out-of-order execution, and optimizations to the cache and memory system. So it's plausible that Zhaozhen might have pulled off a Zen moment. Additionally, the chips are said to be based on a chiplet-style architecture, presumably with different chiplets for I.O. and compute, though this has yet to be confirmed. Chinese CPU designer Zhaozhen was founded 
in 2013 when VIA, VIA Technologies joined forces with the Shanghai Municipal Government. And although VIA hasn't been particularly relevant in the CPU space for several years, it crucially is one of the three companies with a license to the x86 architecture, alongside with Intel and AMD. This gives its CPU a big leg up since they can natively access the massive library of PC-related software made for x86 processors. Cao Xin hasn't named any specific members of the KX7000 series, but the spec sheet indicates there will be at least two models, differentiated by clock speed. Cao Xin hasn't increased core or thread counts with KX7000, and the highest configuration remains at 8-core and 8-thread CPU. Assuming Cao Xin is accurate with its performance claims, the rest of the increased performance presumably stems from architectural improvements, implying a monstrous boost in IPC or instructions per clock. KX7000 is more than just a performance boost, though. It is also comes with several platform improvements. The KX7000 has doubled the supported memory capacity. DDR5 RAM, PCIe 4.0 compatibility, 8 more PCIe lanes, and support for USB 4. The processors will come in both LGA and BGA form factors. Of course, KX7000 will naturally be compared against its X86 rivals. The mid-range Ryzen 7 7700X and the Core, that's the Intel Core i5 13600K, both have massively higher clock speeds than the top-end KX7000 model, plus more threads and cores in the cases of the 13600K, though most are smaller e-cores. They also support faster RAM speeds, which can factor into a variety of workloads. On the other hand, the KX7000 is remarkably equal when it comes to platform features. The KX7000 CPU and motherboards support as much RAM and AMD Ryzen 7000 series, and even as many PCIe lanes. Intel has Zoutzen beat on memory capacity, but KX7000 actually bests Intel's Raptor Lake architecture in PCIe lane count. Indeed, KX7000 doesn't have PCIe 5.0 support, but that's not a massive problem for consumer PCs, given that the technology is only used for top-end solid-state drives at the moment, which aren't likely to appeal to the kind of consumer interested in the KX7000. Whether KX7000 beats or even levels the playing field isn't the whole point for China. The ultimate goal is achieving technological autonomy. Even if using Chinese chips means losing out on raw performance and features, the chip's support for encryption instructions made in China to avoid prying Western eyes is emblematic of the country's effort to attain autonomy. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston is with me. We've been talking about a lot of gift-giving guides and uh, things to purchase. But, Marty, I, I do want to, before you check out for for this week, I, I want to know 
you've sprinkled a few different things along the way through this week's show about yeah, yeah. It, it, suggestions and and different ideas on like we talked about gift cards just a moment well, ago. We, we've had more but, than three dozen products, and as I'm thinking yeah, about them, you yeah. know, some ideas. So I'll, I'll just bring things up. You know, one of the worst parts of waiting too long to do your in-store gift shopping isn't not knowing what to get them. It's, it's defending knowing, yourself well, from, too, from, yeah. from the aggressive Finding shoppers. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was but, my parking spot. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it, it's not knowing when the stores will be sold out or the weather won't let yeah, you get to yeah, them in time yeah, or yeah. which stingy store chain management will be gifted by a strike in the middle of the holiday season. Yes. So... First piece of advice, shop now and save later for making cookies. I, I will tell you that is that is a very wise item. I, I can't tell you how many people I know do their gift shopping. And, okay, well, when when my wife and I were young, we did do very, you know, Christmas Eve gift shopping and and just a little bit before then. But I know it was it was pushing and shoving. And I remember that also from working in retail at uh, at our favorite uh, geek store, Radio Shack. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, Le Shack de Radio. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, and I remember... Uh, you know, I remember. I remember Christmas Eve was one of those days where I would work a total of six hours, seven hours, you know, whatever it was. Open and close, uh, whatever the store hours were. We went home early, but we went home completely, totally exhausted because oh, and writer's cramp. Because when oh, yeah. I worked at Radio Shack, that was back in the day when we were handwriting those receipts. And oh yeah, my, my you know, <laughs> <laughs> that was hideous. All right, let's let's go to a different theme. Sure, yeah. yeah. Holiday currency here may be dollars and cents, yeah. but for most of us, the balance sheet will show a large debt in pounds, and I don't mean pounds sterling. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Do, do we overeat during the holidays? Yes. Enjoy more than the My usual. My name is Benjamin Rockwell. <laughs> My name is Benjamin, and I ate too much for Christmas. Wait, yeah, Hi, Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> too many meanings. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Do we enjoy more than the usual highly caloric alcoholic beverages? I, I, I enjoy way too much eggnog every year without the alcohol. Dig in oh, on second man. helpings. Yeah, dig into the leftovers. I, I'm, I'm a hobbit like that. I go for second breakfast, third <laughs> third lunch. Yeah, all that. Okay, go on. Do a little cookie and eggnog binging. Busted, uh, yeah, there's, right? there's my eggnog. Yep, yep. Okay. <laughs> so every time you feel like sneaking a sweet. Mm-hmm. Drink eight ounces of water first. Oh. <laughs> okay. Remember, the easiest way to lose weight is to not gain it in the first place. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> there is that. And uh, at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm going to flip this around. I'm going to say don't become overly obsessed with it because oh, it's a holiday. Enjoy yourself. Exactly. That, yeah. that, is, that is my approach. Think about it. Use use discretion, and but and I think actually probably the one of the best things is avoiding the alcohol because that's when yeah. we lose our discretion. That's when we lose our inhibitions, and, and that's where we polish off. Shows. We both been to those trade yeah, shows. <laughs> that's where we polish off. You know, three quarters of the pumpkin yeah. pie in one sitting. Uh, and that, no more than half of too. no more than half of the pie. No matter what you're having, don't speed eat it. It can be a tiny cookie. Take bites. That let, that is, let it that's, completely. That's that's a big one for me. Yeah. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. What else do you have? What What well, else comes to mind for let's you? Let's go to the fireplace. Okay. If your house has a fireplace where there's really a fire, not just picture one in front of a space heater with a fat a wood fireplace. Right? Yep. Right? Yep. If it burns wood or if it has fake logs and burns gas, two words of advice. First, have a fire extinguisher handy. It's okay to hide it behind furniture. <laughs> yes, There's always somebody yes. in the room who knows where it is. But the gift trap, all kinds of stuff can get. We, we, we've got two of them. Up and start a fire, yeah. We, we've got two of them. One right right, uh, right where the fire poker is. And one uh, just, uh, it's over by the television. You, you yeah, can't no. miss it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can miss it if you've fallen asleep. So also make yeah. sure the room has a carbon monoxide detector. Yes, yes, yes. Even, even better if it's a piggyback feature on a smoke detector. Sure. Make sure your batteries are good for that, though, too. I mean, oh, it's, okay. it's, yeah, we'll the, get the batteries. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> first, this is an idea that might be a little bit of fun. If you live in a place that gets a lot of snow. Okay. Now, look, you're reaching people in Los Angeles, New Orleans, and so on. I'm not worried about them. But if you if, if it gets a lot of snow. Folks in and, Redmond. <laughs> yeah. And you hate having to clear your drive all the time. Yeah, okay. Shovel the snow backwards. Move all the snow on the drive into a big pile at the end of the drive that nobody will be able to walk or drive over or around. Now, this, okay. is, this is a be a hobo trick that only works if you work from home and have enough food and supplies to last the winter. If you don't and still don't want to shovel, pay the plow service. Okay, so I'm, I'm confused by this. You're, you're saying shovel it back towards your shovel, garage? Shovel it all toward the, tree, the street so nobody can get in or out of your driveway okay. on, on foot or on a car. Okay. And that's how you can avoid having to worry about shoveling the snow because won't, it won't matter if your drive's clear. Nobody's going to try to use it. Oh, okay. All right. But but that only works if you're well-equipped to spend the duration there. Okay. Now, All right. Speaking of duration, December 26th, the day after Christmas is when most batteries get bought. Yes. Yes. Even when you buy extras for the toys, it's never enough. So buy in bulk and look. What about your toys? Here's a list of battery places you may have ignored. Flashlights, smoke alarms, walkie-talkies, remote controls, so many remote controls, home automation sensors, portable display panels, VoIP phone handsets, test gear, wall clocks, bathroom scales, and everything in the kitchen junk drawer. And finally, even if you don't have a cat, keep a bag of classic clay litter in your trunk. The cheaper, the better. It's a very effective traction booster between your spinning wheels and icy pavement. And if you have an electric car, Keep a portable phone charger battery gizmo in the console. You may need it to call for the tow truck and an Uber when traffic tie-ups kill every kilowatt the car had left. Very, very good one. Yeah, lots of, lots of really good tips there. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, January the 4th, 2024. They'll be kicking off the new year at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 5th of the new year at 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and their website is acgnj.org. 
The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 9th, 2024, at 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. And the Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 12th, 2024, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.